Hello from Lahinch County Clare on the Wild West coast of Ireland. I'm Rory McKiernan and you're very welcome to the Love and Courage podcast. A big thanks for tuning in. I'm excited to share another great episode with you. My guest is Joe Murray. Joe is the coordinator with AFRI Action from Ireland, which is a small but significant national and independent Irish organisation working for human rights, global justice and environmental action since 1975. AFRI's patron is none other than Nobel Peace Prize laureate Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Originally from Ballyglass and Carrick Boy in County Longford in the Irish Midlands, Joe has been with AFRI for over 40 years now. Not one for the limelight, he is a highly regarded and I would say humble leader, often quietly working behind the scenes, something that we will be discussing. He has, however, been recognised in the past with an Unsung Hero Award from Desmond Tutu and a Humanitarian Award from the Dalai Lama. I've known Joe a long time and as you're about to hear, he's often reluctant to speak about himself and the work that he does. So it was a great honour that he finally accepted my invitation to come on the Love and Courage podcast to talk about his own journey, his motivations and his deeper thoughts into the work and, and why he does it. This podcast is also available as a video version on the Love and Courage YouTube channel and on the AFRI YouTube channel, as well as on my Facebook page. Just look up Rory McKiernan Hitching for Hope on Facebook. Before we get started, I want to say a big thanks as well to all who chip in to support the podcast, either on a once-off or on a monthly basis. It helps to reach listeners in over 50 countries and to share important voices like Joe's, voices that I think we need to get out into the world. If you want to chip in, please head over to loveandcourage.org. It takes just a minute, either now or later on. When you get a minute, just take a note, loveandcourage.org. And if you're new to the podcast, please do check out the archive of great conversations and be sure to hit subscribe on your podcast app. Ratings and reviews are also appreciated, as is recommending the podcast to friends and family on social media and elsewhere. Thanks also to everyone who continues to support my book, Hitching for Hope, and for all the support with my wife, Susan Quirk's album launch. Her debut album, Into the Sea, is out about two weeks now, and it's been a great success so far with lots of national and regional radio play, feature, press features and reviews in the media. And musician, music fans buying digital and signed CD copies direct from her via her Bandcamp page. It's great that you can listen on Spotify and all of these places, um, but supporting the musicians these days is so important. And susanquirk.bandcamp.com is a great place to go for that. The support, uh, it really does matter. And I, I just want to say a huge thanks to everyone who's shared and supported the album in so many different ways. There's been listeners and fans all over the world. So it's Into the Sea by Susan Quirk. And you can find out more about Susan, her music and her online Learn to Meditate classes over at susanquirk.com. That's Quirk, Q-U-I-R-K-E. I'll also be ending this podcast with a song from the album, a track called Home, which is about the global refugee crisis. Okay, folks, let's get back to this episode of the Love and Courage podcast. It's time to get started now with the conversation with Joe Murray. I hope you enjoy. Joe Murray, you're very welcome to the Love and Courage podcast. It's taken me a while to get you to agree to this, but <laughs> the moment has finally arrived. 
Yeah, I've been, um, yeah, it's the first I've ever done, probably the last as well, but I, I'm delighted it's with you. And I don't think not too many people could um, encourage or persuade me to do something like this, but anyway, yeah. I'm, I'm in your hands, Rory. Yeah. Um, would you mind if I just talked about that momentarily, Joe? Um, my sense is that, I mean, one of the reasons that a lot of people admire how you work and what you do is you don't really make it about you. Is that a conscious decision or how do you feel about all of that? Well, it is kind of a conscious decision. Um, you know, I, I, I really don't like the limelight. I don't like doing this end of the job. But, you know, at the same time, it's necessary at times and it's good at times to do it as well. And it's, and it's important. But I suppose when I when I came into AFRI, or at least when I took over, I suppose, being director of AFRI or coordinator of AFRI, um, you know, one of my great reservations was that I, I wouldn't be somebody who would go out looking for publicity or who wouldn't, you know, be a very frontline person. So I thought that that would be a great disadvantage. But strangely, I have found the opposite in, in a way in that I, I think it actually works very well. And what it does is it is it allows other people's voices to be heard. And I kind of see that as, you know, a role that I have and a role that AFRI has is it kind of amplifies the voice of other people. So in other words, I don't feel I have to be saying it because, you know, really it's about the issues and it's about, you know, people's struggles and people's voices that need to be heard. And if AFRI can provide a platform for that to happen, then I'm quite happy, you know, to be in the background or to be, you know, side stage but not necessarily on stage. But again, sometimes it's necessary and sometimes you have to do it and sometimes it's important. Yeah, yeah. It's it's an often misunderstood uh, type of leadership to be behind rather than in front. And, you know, there there seems to be a tendency for the the big showman or showwoman up front. Mm. But I, well, I was kind of thinking about it this morning, and I, I don't know, there's a role, I suppose, as a producer, which, you know, in films or theatre, the producer is is not often seen, mm. but he or she plays a, an important role. And I kind of feel that, you know, like when it comes to events that we organise, whether it's Fela Bredia or the Famine Walk or the Hedge School, you know, the, they're... they're there are jigsaw pieces to be put together in order for the things to happen. And I like that part of it. I actually love that part of it. And I love working with people, visionary people and people who have, you know, exciting ideas and have, you know, knowledge that I don't have and expertise that, that I don't have. And together we can create something really interesting. And, you know, and often that is the case, you know, that something really good comes out of those discussions, out of those chats together, you know, putting the thing together and then letting it happen. Yeah. And, you know, and, and it's great when it does happen. It's a great sense of satisfaction. And, you know, I often I'm very happy that I've been a very small part of it, at least in the final outcome, you know. So anyway, yeah, I, I strangely, what I would have considered to be... Um, shortcoming maybe has turned out from my point of view to be something positive and uh, and good 
Yeah, I think it's something that a lot of people might grapple with this notion that they're not the right person. I guess classically it's referred to as imposter syndrome, but it's an important thing to overcome and challenge it, isn't it? Yeah, well, you see, I think there's there's a very, you know, particular understanding of what leadership is, which is to be out there in front and to be, to be the voice and to be the person and to be, you know, that charismatic person that represents the organization or the issue or whatever. And that is, it's a, legi- a legitimate style of leadership and some people do that very well. But I think what's important to realize is that if you don't have that, it doesn't mean that you don't have a role. It doesn't mean that you cannot be a leader. Um, and it just means to find your own find your own way of doing things and, yeah. and you know allow it to, to happen sometimes allow it to happen around you yeah I think there was a, a TED talk out I can't remember the, the exact name or person behind it but it was something along the lines of the power of introverts I'm not I'm not saying you're an introvert per se but it's the idea that the the quiet is so often understated and under-recognized and the society, for whatever reason, values and champions the loud, brash, charismatic and assumes that that's more effective. Whereas in matter of fact, often it can be absolutely getting in the way and particularly getting in the way of collaboration. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Yeah, well, that's very true about getting in the way of collaboration. But also, it's kind of understandable in the media age in which we live, you know, that People want entertainers, they want sound bites, they want big personalities, you know, they want they want entertainment really. <laughs> and I don't see myself as an entertainer. You know, I uh, I suppose like I'm driven by something uh, and it's not, I'm not driven by the need to entertain, I'm driven by something else. And, you know, if, if I can be part of facilitating uh, an issue to be raised or a voice to be heard or, you know, action to, to happen, mm. then then that's that's what gives me my mm. job satisfaction, if you like. Yeah, well, I, I think what's coming to mind somewhat is the idea that TV personalities and entertainment entering the world of politics. We had recent examples in the US that can show us where that ends up. Yeah, and yeah. you know, give me a quiet, strong, calm person any day in that regard. And and speaking of quiet, calm person, there's uh, for those of you watching the video version of this, there will be an audio version. There's a painting behind you on the wall of a calm, quiet person, and I'd like you to talk about who that person is, Joe, if you don't mind. Yeah, was well, um, you know, you know, one of the great things about the work that I've done is the extraordinary people that I've come across that I've had the pleasure and the privilege of working with, you know, that I've been inspired by and, you know, and often, like you were saying, not the obvious people, but um, the quiet, consistent campaigner or, you know, the one who consistently works and works for justice, you know, and one such person is Colin Roddy, who's, yeah, amazingly, I find it amazing that he's actually... (laughs) He's on the wall behind me, and he finds it even more amazing. I was I was talking to him recently, and he had a great laugh at the idea of it because he probably, without exaggeration, is one of the most humble people I've ever met. He's extra, extraordinarily self-effacing and, and humble. So, can you tell people who he is and what what he's been about and what he does? Yeah, anyone that doesn't know, he's an extraordinary man. I met him first in in Kimmage Manor. I, I 
I did the development studies in Cambridge in 1979, and I worked there as register in 1980, and um, Colm did the course then. And um, and he tells the story himself, so I won't not speaking out of turn. But when he arrived to do the course, there was a there was a, a receptionist in Kimmage, and there was a big parlour inside the door. And the receptionist, when Colm came to sign up to do the course, the receptionist brought him into the parlour and put him sitting in there and brought him in a sandwich and a cup of tea because he thought he was homeless, you know. So. Column often tells that 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 story, but um, yeah, so he he did the development studies course and came. he had been an engineer by profession, but he actually left. He, he walked out of his job because of the political corruption he saw, the 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 politicians interfering and in planning, and all that. So he was a man of incredible principle then, and continues to be now. Then he went to Ethiopia. He worked there for I think six years. He's Married to Sally uh, Fay from from Beatrice Christie, they have three children from, from um, they actually adopted in Ethiopia, and um, then Colin went on to become a peace activist, really almost full time, and um, and recently then I suppose why his picture is, is behind me on the wall is because um, he did an action in Shannon um, five years ago now and. Um, uh, in protest at the use of Shannon by US military. And he he and Dave Gunham went in and they they, they did it from a faith perspective. So it was a it was a faith action, a, a faith action in opposition to war. And they, you know, cut cut the fence, went in and waited to be arrested and were arrested. And then four years later they were brought to court. And there was an extraordinary court case last year, which I attended, and they put forward an, an extraordinary defence of their actions, and they were both actually found not guilty, both Dave and Colm. So, yeah, so it's an extraordinary story, and it's a great, you know, it's an inspirational story, really, you know, because as we were talking about earlier, leadership takes many forms, and, mm. you know, Colm is often seen on his own outside the door or outside government buildings, just holding up a placard, yeah. reminding us and reminding the world of what, what war is about, and particularly about Ireland's involvement in it through Shannon Airport. And that's an incredibly important message that we need to get out. And, you know, the, the importance of what Colm did and the integrity with which he has done it is is fantastic, you know. And he's, I think he's in and around... The age of eighty, he might be yeah, a little bit south of eighty. Very close to it, which is fantastic, you know. Yeah. And, and he's still, you know, incredibly committed and, and devoted. Um, and that painting uh, was done by Owen O'Loughlin, which is uh, Corey Pierce's grand nephew. Uh, did this painting of um, Colum, and uh, my sister-in-law bought it for me. So that's why Colum ends up on, on my wall. Behind uh, so Shannon, Shannon has been a long-standing uh, issue of concern for you, for Afri, and for many people. But it, it also seems to have gone a bit quiet in recent times in terms of the public visibility. Uh, you know, notwithstanding the actions of Dave and Colm and others. Um, mm-hmm. But why do you think it's so hard to kind of? 
get traction or, you know, consistent polls have said the public does oppose the militarization, the military use of a civilian airport for foreign wars and so on. But yet, you know, it seems to flare up and die down. You know, the Labour Party, the Green Party, others have said they opposed it, but then they get into government, not much happens. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you completely, Rory. And it's a very frustrating issue, you know, like since the beginning AFRI has been involved in one way or another in trying to oppose it, to highlight the obscenity of what's happening. But as you say, we've had little or no progress, which is is a a sad report. But I I, I really don't understand it. It's it's a thing that should be, you know, a number one priority for people. But it's not. And And that includes people who are concerned about many social issues and many justice issues. But I, I've been talking about this recently with uh, a colleague and AFRI board member, John McGuire, as to, I, I don't know what it is that we have a great difficulty in confronting the issue of militarization and war. And in one way, it's very understandable because it's a very overwhelming issue. You know, it, it is, along with climate change, it's up there as really the greatest threat to our planet. And the two things are completely interwoven and interlinked, climate change and and militarization. And we've managed to take on board the climate change issue. You know, it's actually been addressed. There's a, there's a you know, huge awareness now of the urgent need to tackle climate change for all our survivals. And that's a fantastic thing. But there's not the same awareness at all in relation to militarization and war, which holds equal potential to destroy our planet. You know, like we have more nuclear weapons than can destroy the planet several times over and governments are adding to them. You know, we had this shocking announcement recently that the British government is going to spend an initial 78 billion on increasing their, uh, updating their military um, hardware. And I was talking to Richard Moore yesterday from Children Crossfire and they have completely cut the uh, aid budget, the uh, British government, including, you know, the work that Children Crossfire do, this incredible, important work. So so it's a clear example of how the war industry has been supported and funded, and peace and development has been neglected and underfunded. But, you know, there's, there's no sense of outrage about that. Um, and I find that extraordinary that... I don't know what it is. We we don't seem to be able to take on board or face up to this, um, you know, this this essential threat to our planet and to ourselves. You know, nineteen hundred billion dollars is spent every every year on weapons and preparation for war. Nineteen hundred billion dollar. Imagine what that could do. You know, we did a project in Africa just a second where we calculated what the arms industry costs every second. And we used the money we raised to fund 26 anti-poverty, anti-poverty projects all over the world. That's from one second. And that was, you know, that was 15 years ago. It has almost doubled since then. So it's, a, it's, an, it's an extraordinary issue. Um, it's one that we have to confront. We're not doing so. And I don't know, we haven't got the language, but I suppose we didn't succeed for a long time with climate change, and then something something happened, like Greta Thunberg emerged, and maybe it'll take something like that for us to realise 
the urgency mm-hmm. of the issue of militarization and war that faces us. How much of it do you think is a education, information and awareness conundrum whereby, you know, you certainly might read about conflicts in in the media or you might read about refugees drowning and so on. But very rarely do you find out about where they're from, what they were fleeing from yeah. and who was bombing them and where the exactly. bombs were made. That's exactly the issue, Rory. And uh, until we begin doing that, I think, you know, Jack Hines, he was a board member of AFRI, and he said, uh, you know, you can either, if a tap is leaking, you can either keep on mopping up the water off the floor or you can fix the tap. And that's what we're, that's what we're not doing in relation to the, the, the whole issue of refugees and uh, forced migration. We're not looking to what is driving them. You know, it's, it's climate change and war. And we do recognise the climate change dimension to it. But... People can, uh, governments and corporations continue to supply weapons to the most brutal uh, regimes, and they do it without, um, you know, uh, uh, respect, as if it's a respectable thing to do. Um, Donald Kelly wrote a play called The Business of Blood, and really, that's what war and the weapons industry is. And sadly, Ireland is getting more immersed in that, and again, it's happening by stealth and there's very little awareness or opposition. Well, what were some of the early kind of formative experiences or people in your life that led you to get an initial awareness of, of the world around you, whether that be as a child or as a teen and then later as into your your 20s and so on? Yeah, well, you know, I came from rural Ireland to County Longford, a very remote part of County Longford. And um, but my parents had a great, my father in particular had a great sense of the world and of you know what's going on in the world. He listened to the news avidly. He talked about things that were happening, you know. And and my mother would have been less interested, but incredibly compassionate, you know, like particularly in later years when we had television because we didn't have television for much of my youth. But later on, like the empathy that she had for suffering people, it was extraordinary. It was as if... Uh, take your time, Joe. No problem. Sorry, Jesus, I don't know where that came from. Well, you know, I think underneath so many of these issues are, I suppose that's, you know, it wasn't, I wasn't at the forefront of my mind there, Joe, but at the end of the day, you know, the, the, the things that drive us on end up being deeply personal, don't they? And and the mm-hmm. people that influence exactly. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. Yeah. You know, um, you know, you just think of, I suppose, yeah, I began thinking about the struggles that my mother went through and my parents went through. Um, you know, but they still had that generosity of spirit, you know, that they weren't just focused on looking after their own family, but they had an awareness and an outreach to other people and um, and, and that kind of compassion, which is incredibly important today. You know, it's not it's not outdated. It's um, it should, um, you know, it should run through everything we do, you know, because if we get harsh and, um, you know, uncaring then then we're then we're we're losing something really important you know so joe it seems that that apple 
you know, didn't fall too far from the tree for yourself, but but also for other family members. You know, I would have met your brother Paddy, for instance, and it seems that the the values and the influence of your parents really kind of was massive for the whole family. Yeah, yeah, it's actually true, Rory, and it's interesting because, you know, I knew I was doing this today and I, I was thinking about it. And, um, yeah, so my family, all of them, like I'm, I'm one of eight in the family and, and all of them are involved in somewhere or another in CASA, which is the Caring and Sharing Association, which my brother founded, um, or in similar types of work, you know, so... Yeah, so I suppose what it what it does show is how much influenced we are by our family situation and by the values that our that our family holds. And you know, like one of the things I was thinking about is we had an aunt who lived across the fields from us, and she was a fantastic character. We loved to see her coming because she was great entertainment. Uh, she was Aunt Mary, but she'd always come with a little parcel under her arm when she'd come to visit us, and she'd open up the parcel and it would be a jumper that she had knitted for one of us, you know. So, you know, she had her family reared, so she looked to help out then with with us because we were coming up later on. But, mm-hmm. like, that lovely uh, generosity, again, that generosity of spirit where she did what she could. She didn't have a lot herself, but she knew how to knit. So she came, mm-hmm. and we'd all be wondering who, got, who would get the jumper this week, you know, or this month. So, um, yeah, so I think... There, there are, there, there is that kind of, that dimension of of kindness and generosity and goodness, really, um, which which is there, um, and and that's something we should retain, and treasure and 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 bring into whatever we do in in life. You know, um, we can. It's a very important to have a good political analysis and to be, you know, clear about the causes of injustice but I really strongly believe that we have to do it with 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 compassion and uh, and with a, a degree of kindness because mm. there's enough harshness and um, hardness in the world you know I'm staying with County Longford for for a bit um I think I recall you tell me about a an epic battle in the area you're from. I don't know if it is something you can talk about uh, on the record, but there was something concerning a pig farm. Is that something that you can talk about? Oh, yeah. I'm quite happy to talk about it. Really. Some people think I never stop talking about it. <laughs> Pat Pidgeon used to call me Slurry Murray at one stage. So Pat <laughs> oh, God. Love I it. Want, I don't want that name to stick. Um, <laughs> Yeah, like, you know, like I grew up in a small farm. It was, it was like, amazingly, it's what we're trying to recreate. It was a sustainable farm. We grew our own vegetables. We had we had a few cows, we had sheep and we had goats and we had a, we had a litter of pigs as well, a sow, which produced a litter. Um, you know, so I don't have any animosity towards pigs per se. But then, um, you know, some years ago, a piggery, a neighbour's, sold his land and it was brought by this man and he built a gigantic piggery which now has 34,000 pigs in it and I really think that's obscene in the sense that you know just they never see the light of day they're born they're fed they're injected whatever and then they're they're sold and you know so there's that and then there is the um, 
the environmental consequences of it, you know, like piggery smell. And, uh, you know, like I, as far as I'm concerned, it has contaminated the place of my birth, which is, you know, it's, it's a great regret. My, my family still live there. My sister lives there. We visit her, well, we used to visit her regularly when we could, and we will again. But, yeah, it's terrible that you have mm. to now breathe in the foul air of the, of the piggery when you, when you go to your home place, you know. It, it really does speak to the the damage of, of industrial agriculture, you know. Yeah. I, I'm not suggesting that we're going back to sort of um, small yeah. peasant-like farming, although that has certainly has its merits as Antal of Bio and, and others would, would advocate, mm. um, and organic farming and permaculture and so on. But, I mean, when you get to that level, uh, 34,000 animals that, as you said, never see the light of day and... Um, yeah. There's health, environment, and and all sorts of issues there. Yeah, I I, I just think it, it it's wrong, and you know I think future generations will, will look back and say how do how do we let things like that happen? But you know at the moment there is a demand, and demand has been met, and um, you know but hopefully, and I think it is obviously there is an increase in awareness about climate change and the impact of it, and one of the issues is uh, intensive farming, like it's yeah. a huge contributory factor. So that has to be addressed. And I would hope a more humane kind of uh, farming system emerged, you know. Your thoughts around this, Joe, have they influenced your own kind of consumption choices and diet and so on? And are you vegetarian? Yeah, yeah, we, we, we are vegetarian. Now, again, I'm, I'm vegetarian for about, I don't know, maybe 15 years, something like that. So it took me a long time. But... Um, yeah, well, uh, well, all except one in our in our family is uh, vegetarian. Um, so, yeah, and I, I I do think that's important. I, you know, for for environmental reasons and for animal animal welfare or care for animals, you know, I know I know would find it difficult to think about eating meat. Whereas one time, for most of my life, you know, uh, it was. Uh, completely natural thing and you know again when I grew up at home you know you didn't you weren't in a position to choose or to be fussy or to say I want to eat meat because if you didn't there wouldn't be that much else you know mm. um I want you to take me to when you were at, at that kind of late teens and early 20s what did you choose college or what path did you take and and where where did you end up <laughs> yeah well I went to St. Mel's College in Longford and yeah, I was happy enough there, and I, yeah, well, then after that, I, I joined uh, Kiltegan, St. Patrick's in Kiltegan, Missionary Society. I suppose that I always had this uh, concern, this desire to, you know, work in relation to the global south. I didn't know how. At that time, the main channel was as a as a missionary, you know, so so I left, left, uh, St. Mel's and went to Kiltegan. And I was there for six years. And, and like, there were six extremely happy years, you know, like, you know, people now might think that was a terrible thing to do, but I, I don't think that at all. I had six extraordinary years where I met amazing people, many of whom are still great friends of mine, you know. So, um, and it was a very formative experience, you know. I, I, you know, I learned to meditate, which is something I do to this day, and it's something really positive that I would want to share with anyone that would be interested. So, yeah, so I, I spent six years there and then I 
I left and I I did the development studies course, as I mentioned, where I met Colin Ruddy. And that introduced me to the area that I'm involved in now. Um, you know, I got I got to again meet incredible people and um uh, a man called Michel de Vertaille was a very influential teacher and he talked about, you know, um well, well like the obvious thing now it seems but at a time for me it's mind blowing that um hunger is man made and man maintained and it can by can be changed by people if the political will exists. Mm. Man is a sexist term, but it's appropriate, I think, in this mm. in this context. And um you know, so my mind was really opened up. I met people from all over the world there, and it was just a fantastic place to be. Yeah. And ultimately, you decided you chose not to become a missionary, as such, Joe. So, like, was it, what what was involved in that choice? And then, obviously, you know, you could argue that you became you took the same impulse and and moved it into different directions. Mm. Yeah, well, like I was six years, and it was a seven year course, so I was at the point of decision making and. Um, yeah, and I, I was quite open to the idea at the time, but I, what I felt was I had, you know, grown up in rural Ireland, I had gone to college and then I had gone straight into a seminary and I was now going to make a lifelong commitment without having any had any real experience of life. So that was the main thing I said I, I was leaving for that reason. And um, yeah, so and then I, when I when I came out, I got involved in working with um, a homeless um, homeless people in, in Sherrard House, actually a great friend of mine then was Tony Ryan, still a good friend of mine. Um, and we we worked in, 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 in Sherrard House and we actually, we set up a house then for, for homeless people. And, um, you know, so that was, you know, for me, that was incredible coming out of, a seminary and I was really now in a whole other world but it was it was extraordinarily mind-blowing really to see you know what was happening the, the condition of people in homelessness and you know and then to meet people who are doing some great work on that area so yeah so I got completely involved in that and then I met Mary Lou as well so that that had a part to play I'd say it had a large part to play <laughs> It of a large part, but yeah, but well, we met, and um, you know, and then and we then we broke up for seven years because you know you need to think about things before you rush into them, and uh, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, but uh, anyway, it seemed to be meant to be because yeah, yeah, and we've I've it's been one of the great you know great experiences of my life. Uh, Meeting and marrying Mary Lou eventually, and having four children that we have. Yeah, wonderful. Um, I think during that the, those seven years, I think you had an initial from my own memory of talking to you before. Did you spend time? You spent a year or two abroad during that time, did you? Yeah, you have a good memory, Rory. Yeah, well, one one of the things I did then was um, I went to Brazil. And um, like at the time, I was very influenced by, by liberation theology. And that man, Michel Vertai, that I mentioned, he was a great liberation theologian. And like it was really exciting what was ha happening in terms of liberation theology, particularly in Latin America. So uh, I went out to the Kiltegans in, in, 
in Recife in northern Brazil. There was a man there, I don't know if people, if anyone will have heard of him, Heller Camera was his name. He was a very radical uh, uh, bishop. He's famous for saying, when I, when I give food to the poor, they call me a saint. But when I ask, why do the poor not have food, they, they call me a communist, you know. So, um, so yeah, so we're in Recife where he was. In fact, I met him and he was a very inspirational figure. And stayed with the Kildean guys there. And like, it's just fantastic what was happening. The real sense of, you know, really people struggling for justice and, you know, working in the favelas. And it was a very, a very enriching and challenging and amazing place to spend time, you know. So I suppose that certainly reinforced my, my decision as to, this is the area I want to work in. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I knew this is what I wanted to do. Um, and I was just very lucky then to the doors opened where I ended up in Africa and worked with Concern, worked overseas with Concern in, uh, in Sudan. And, you, you know, so the circumstances and people lead you in interactions. And, um, do you do you think you know you've referred to it as being lucky, but do you, do you think there are also choices? You know, like like the, the the path obviously can move this way and that way, but at the end of the day, you you signed up for a path or whether it be a vocation. Like it wasn't just a pure accident; you ended up in those places. Yeah, well, that's true. I was always looking for you know looking for a way to you know work. As I, as I said initially, I thought. The missionary way was was the way, but then when that wasn't to be, you know, I I wanted to find a way that you could do that kind of work as a ordinary citizen, you know. So yeah, I was always looking for that, and I was always, uh, you know, I was very inspired by Martin Luther King and Dorothy Day, and um, later on Tutu, and you know, so I. I I suppose, yeah, as you say, I was making decisions, and I, I was, I was looking for a path and kind of following that path as, as I was looking. But yeah, I was, I, 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 I was searching and making decisions, on, but also very lucky that, you know, ways opened up. Did, um, did livelihood ever come into your mind, or did you think about it much in terms of, you know, careers and salaries and houses and family? starting a family because you know that would be at the front of a lot of people's mind yeah. when they choose what direction they go exactly well that's a very interesting question because we only were talking about that the other day with with my son here who's 25 you know and i was saying well like he was saying he'd probably never buy a house and i was saying well when i was 25 i never thought i would buy a house either um although it was much more achievable but, but not for me and and like you said i had no intention i know thoughts about buying a house never I, I didn't even think about by being a father i just thought this is i want you know i had an idea about the work i wanted to do and the ways i wanted to do it and that's that's really was i was completely preoccupied with that i'm not necessarily saying it was a good thing but that's the way it was um i suppose i was lucky in the sense that mary lou is a bit more practical and uh, she kind of thought it was a good idea we'd live in a house if we were together. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so, yeah, so, you know, yeah, it's, it's good, it's a good um, balance. 
Yeah. Do you think that speaks to the idea that, um, you know, if you choose the core decision from the right place and commit to it, that, you know, obviously environment and circumstances vary massively and have a, a lot can add a lot to to the to way you know as in the housing market is the housing market if it's bad it's bad but on another level things have a way of working out as well yeah well I, certainly that's that's true for me you know and and it's true for for another for a lot of people but then i suppose yeah as you say not everybody i had a lot of advantages really you know i had you know very secure upbringing and i had a education and mm. I had contacts and you know you know so I kind of had a good network around me including you know I have, I have great siblings who are very supportive have always been and, and continue to be so yeah so I had a I had a very good um I had security around me even though I didn't have much at the time and I wasn't interested like I don't know we worked for very small salaries for many years in Africa Mm. And that didn't, it didn't consider it didn't you know it wasn't a consideration because we could live, mm. but um, yeah, but yeah. So so to a certain extent, things will work out, but they'll work out better for others, for some than others, because some have an advantage already. You know. Yeah. Well put. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where at the moment do you see signs of? hope and inspiration is there anybody or anything or any campaign or movement that is lighting you up at the moment yeah well i'm i'm incredibly encouraged by greta thunberg and the whole youth movement climate change movement you know like i find that fantastic um you know i'm really hopeful and you know the great awakening around climate change is, is a very hopeful thing i i believe um you know i we, we've been working in schools since I started in AFRI and, you you know, we've gone into it an awful lot of schools and spoken to an awful lot of people. And sometimes you'd say, is it having any impact at all? And I'm not saying it is that that's had the impact, but something has had an impact. And it's probably, you know, those those pebbles in the, in the water all over the years that helped at least to, you know, to bring about this great awakening that has happened now. So, yeah, so I find that very... Uh, hopeful um, you know people again campaigns I've, I've met over the years like Tom Highland and his team are has been fantastic uh, really inspirational the Dunstore Strikers mm. you know the work that Richard Moore is doing so there's there's wonderful inspirational people and campaigns and work going on could you could you give listeners and viewers uh, just a quick snapshot of Tom Highland's story and also the Dunstores story? Yeah, well, I suppose Dunstores first was um, obviously they they took part in an anti-apartheid strike in in Henry Street in Dublin Dunstores, and again, that's a phenomenon that ten young people walked out of work because they refused to handle what they called the fruits of apartheid literally fruit that came from South Africa uh, during the apartheid regime. And, you know, Afri had the great pleasure of accompanying them on part of their journey and standing with them on the picket line. Uh, you know, we had the connection with Desmond Tutu and he invited them to South Africa. So we had a, we had a part to play, of course, a small part to play because it was all about the strikers. Um, 
So, yeah, but again, just to think that they did that, you know, we talked earlier about the spirit of generosity and kindness. Um, and and that's part of it, that they gave up their jobs, literally. Like, it's it's amazing. One of them lost her home because, you know, she was on strike. And, um, you know, like, it's just fantastic. And um, and they were recognised then by the, the uh, ANC and South African leadership and the anti-apartheid exactly. movement. And Edson Mandela met them when he came to Ireland and he said they were part of the history of South Africa's struggle for freedom, which is fantastic, you know, and rightly so. They were amazing. Um, and then Tom Island is another, you know, extraordinary story. He was a bus driver and um, he heard a, or saw a TV programme about East Timor and he gave up his job. He borrowed a typewriter and he started a campaign in his front room in Ballyfermot. And it certainly was one of the most amazing campaigns that I ever was involved with. And I was a very good friend of Tom. Still am. He's in living in Dili now. But uh, like it was just such an amazing thing to, you know, to see how he operated. And he was utterly dedicated. He just gave his life to it. Um, but he also had a fantastic sense of humour. So you know, the combination of those two, like he was incredibly popular with every politician. In, in, in Go Learn because he led them all to believe that he was voting for them. <laughs> Probably would like to say that. But anyway, um, you know, he was just able to get on with everyone and bring everybody with him for the cause. And he had this absolute uh, um, 100% commitment to Timor. Mm. And, you know, like in, in 1999, Timor achieved its independence. And, uh, and he, um, you know, he went there as the honorary consul, and now he's living there. Mm. And um, but again, it's just one of those amazing stories that uh, I, when when I haven't been in schools in a long time, but when I do go to schools, the two stories I tell young people is about the Donstor strikers. You know, somebody sitting on a cash register in Donstor's would would they be the first to say, "I can do something about apartheid," but they did. And Tom Highland, you know. You know, a bus driver who just saw a program, and I have no doubt that the the campaign in Ireland made a, a massive contribution. Yeah, to it, the whole struggle in Timor. You know, the places like Palestine are coming to mind now when we think, yeah. "What can we do?" And yeah. there's always something, isn't there? There's always something, and you know, um, and and there are great people working on Palestine, and the issue is kept alive. It's it's a horrific situation there. And um, you know, it would be it would be it would be fantastic if um, you could get a an outcome. But I, you know, I suppose I think what you have to do is keep on believing. You know, because um, you know, I, I used to I used to meet Tom Ireland, and he would, have, you know, I meet him for coffee in the morning, and he would have been reading about the atrocities that happen in Timor the night before, and he'd tell you all about them. And I used to think, why is he doing this to himself? You know, mm. why is he killing himself when he'll never succeed? Mm. Or you know, but like you know, I never thought I'd see the end of apartheid. I never thought I'd see, mm. you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall. I never thought I'd see peace in Northern Ireland to the extent that it is there now. So, like, political shifts happen when we don't expect them. You know, we keep on trotting 
and nothing seems to happen forever and ever and then there's a chink and it, it falls apart. Um, there's a great, uh, people might know of Bruce Kent, he's a great guy and I have a great time from. And But he has founded a, a, movement, a thing called the Movement for the Abolition of War. And I just think that that's fantastic, you know. That's the kind of thinking we need. And like people say, that's ridiculous and it's idealistic, but somebody started a group called the Movement for the Abolition of Slavery. Mm. And they were told, oh, that's ridiculous. Like, you can't, the economy can't survive without slaves. You know, people need to envision things. People need to think. What was it like... Um, being in South Africa, you were invited to Nelson Mandela's inauguration. What was that moment like? Oh, it's fantastic. It's fantastic, yeah. Yeah. It's just to be in among the crowd when the inauguration happened. And, uh, you know, it really was a moment in history. You know, it was, it was extraordinary. And that it happened, it had happened relatively peacefully. Obviously, an awful lot of people. Too many people died in the struggle, but the transition had happened relatively peacefully. And here was this inspirational man uh, taking on the baton of power. And um, like there was a moment, uh, like I don't, I don't like military symbolism, but a number. There was a moment when he was inaugurated, and then uh, I don't know, maybe six helicopters flew over with the new South African flag coming down, flying in the wind. And it was just, you know, breathtaking. And, um, afterwards, we ended up back in the in Soweto. Uh, we just got no, talking to people and they invited us back to Soweto. And like, people were just dancing in the street. It was like carnival. And uh, like, it's just, uh, I suppose it never got better in South Africa than that day, unfortunately. Things are not great there now, but still, mm. that was the moment, and they had achieved their their goal, and it was it was just mm. delirium, you know. Mm. So I'm going to move you from South Africa to uh, Kildare now, and one of the great kind of milestones in the annual Afri calendar is the Philip Bridge event. Could you tell people what that's about, how it came about, and why it matters today? Yeah, well, like, I suppose one of the things that distinguishes Afri is that we try to make connections with Irish history and Irish culture, and therefore we have the Famine Walk, you know, linking back to our experience of Angortamor, and, you know, the fact that it continues today. We do a hedge school, again, um, the hedge school arose when people were denied education, they created their own form of education, the hedge school on Skullkush Klee, which is a lovely idea. But then, and then Fela Bridget is the Festival of Bridget. And, and Bridget is pretty exceptional. You know, whether it's Bridget the Goddess or Bridget the Saint, it's, uh, you know, or a symbolism of Bridget is powerful as a woman, as a, as a woman with power at that time. Um, and then there's this story told about the fact that she, the poor person came looking for food and she gave away her father's most treasured possession, his sword. You know, and the importance of that symbol, like, really, is there any more important symbol today that we need to do than to give away the weaponry and the cost of war and, and you know, provide for the needs of people? 
Mm. So, yeah, so there's a rich symbolism. And uh, in 1982 19, uh, or 83, Sean McBride launched what we call the St. Bridges Peace Cross campaign in Derry. And that was just young people making the peace, the old traditional bridge across, but we, we called it a peace cross. And we, you know, built a campaign around it of um, disarmament, really. And so when we had done that for 10 years, we decided to have a conference in Kildare. And it just happened to be at the same time the Brigadines were returning to Kildare. So we, we, we meant it to be a once-off event, but it has continued up to now. And, uh, like, it's a festival and it's, you know, it, it's about it's about care for the planet. It's about anti-war. Um, it's about the rights of migrants. It's about asylum seekers, people in, in uh, direct provision. You know, so it, I think, you know, we, we can take on these issues and we really need to take them on, on. But when we can connect them in some way into our own history and culture, they resonate with people more. Mm. And, you know, and I think that's an important part of that event um, you know, and, and always we would have music and, and poetry in, in everything we do. And I think that's incredibly important. You know, going back to what we talked about earlier is that we can just be very harsh. And, and we tend to do this in the beginning, that everything was just berating, you know, a, a litany of a litany of disasters, as, as somebody characterized it. I think you can't just, you know, inflict the litany of disasters on people. You need to, you need to give information. You need to power people. But I think music and, and poetry plays a very important part, very important function in the in the whole work of justice. You know, um, if I what was who was it that said, if I can't dance, I don't want to be part of your revolution. Mm. I can't dance, but I could try. But um, yeah, so but I think I think we just need that element that. Mm cultural, social, you know, recognising that we're human beings with, with many dimensions, not just mm. minds uh, and brains. Thinking about uh, Kildare there, I'm just thinking about, um, I'll never forget the image of uh, the Dalai Lama going to Kildare, that obviously yourselves in Afri and Children in Crossfire were, were made happen. And, um, and yourself had spun out. Well, that's yeah, yeah. There was there was a, a variety in the mix there, uh, but you know, not least Richard Moore as well. Um, but the the Dalai Lama arriving into this small, essentially small town or in in rural Ireland, and the image of him meeting school kids and then presenting him with a Bridget's cross, and then that the next day, then that becoming a front page of the Irish Times. A very big, powerful. So what I really saw was this ancient Irish symbol and a Tibetan, a, a Tibetan refugee, essentially, from this other ancient society. And there it was, you know, there was such a magic in that. But two of the, the kind of key people in that are, were like Sister uh, Mary and Rita Minahan, they're the Brigidines. Um, they're what you might say as well, other quiet forces in the background that many people don't always hear about but when they meet them they know about it could you talk a little bit about those if, if you don't mind and they'll probably cringe to hear themselves talked about but mm -hmm. look at sometimes you need to to name it 
Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I agree with you completely, Rory. Um, it's interesting, actually. Tomorrow I'm, I'm speaking at... Um, it's a it's a pre-chapter meeting that the, the Bridgetines have their chapter, and they've asked me to speak on the theme of how can we be good ancestors, which I think is a beautiful idea, you know. And um, you know, and yeah, like you say, we we kind of have had a, a partnership with with the Bridgetines for many years around Fela Bridge and, and the Bridge Cross, and. Um, and what they're doing in, in Fjell Bridge and, and elsewhere, like in the Tala Inter, Intercultural Centre, is, is, is incredibly important. And, you know, it's kind of re, re, reclaiming uh, Celtic spirituality, you know, that wasn't, um, you know, autocratic or, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, um, hierarchical, you know. So, like, it's a new... Well, well, an old, a rediscovered kind of form of, of, of spirituality that's dealing with care for the planet and how we relate to the earth and how we relate to other people. So, yeah, so I think it's an incredibly important role and an incredibly necessary role. And again, I think it is that thing about the, the importance of not just, you know, action for change, but action informed by, by compassion and, and kindness. Mm. And that's what I find, that's what I find in Kildare, and that's what has kept on bringing me back to it. Mm. And it's personified in the people like, you know, Rita and Mary and Eileen and Phil, and, um, you know, uh, many of the great uh, uh, people that are, that are there, you know. Mm. And so as we speak now, we're approaching the annual Afri Famine Walk event, which is another kind of key milestone in the calendar. Um, and then this year, obviously, it will be online again because of COVID restrictions. But, you know, we had an amazing experience last year where several hundred people in, I think, over a dozen countries tuned in. Um, but like the Irish Famine on Gartamore, the Great Hunger, it still holds a massive, it still holds great importance in marking it, doesn't it? And drawing the parallels and, and therefore that being the point of, of this annual event. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, I remember when we started commemorating it, we got really critical articles in a number of newspapers saying, you know, what are these people doing? It's time to forget about that. We're, we're the new Ireland, it's time to move on. But I couldn't disagree more with that uh, perspective. I really think we have to learn from our history um, and, and bring the important elements of it forward. Now, obviously, history can be interpreted in many ways, but, you know, and, and that's why in particular we want to interpret on Gartha Moore, well, in terms of the impact it had on, on our own people, the suffering that they had, but the fact that we can learn of extremely important lessons for today, you know. So, you know, we're 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 the survivors of of on Moor. You know, we've we've come from there, so it is deeply ingrained in our psyche, and 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 it informs who we are. Um, and you know, like there's so many important lessons. You know, obviously the impact of colonialism and. 
um, being under the control of a foreign power and um, this blind allegiance to the um, less fair economics, you know, they're, they're still so relevant today. Mm. But the other one that's really relevant, and, and I always mention it is, well, really it's from Claire Grady Walsh, who said it first to me was the fact that it was an environmental disaster, you know, it was a, a loss of biodiversity that, um, you know, we had come to depend on one variety of potatoes, the lumper, when there are 2,000 varieties at least. Mm. You know, and that's such a, a salutary lesson in, in the world in which we live, in which we're heading towards monoculturalism again, when we're handing over control of our food to large corporations, when we're losing the ability to grow food ourselves. You know, it's, it's such a basic thing. Mm. You know, we did it when I grew up. It was just a natural thing. You grew enough food for yourself and your family and even, you know, sell some. So that's something we need to rediscover. And that's another lesson we can take from Angorta Moore. So, uh, yeah, so it, it's an annual event coming up again uh, on Saturday 15. It is, as you say, online. It was online last year. I found it absolutely fascinating last year. I was kind of dreading it in advance, but... It was amazing to see people, what it meant to people. You know, people who had done the walk over the 33 years or whatever number of years it's been going on and who really connected with it and for whom it meant something really significant. And yeah, so this year I'm really looking forward to it. I know we have an amazingly interesting lineup of people and you're the host, Rory, so we can't go wrong. Hope not. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> yeah. Um, and obviously I'm just thinking back some of the, there, can you, can you name some of the people that led the famine walk in, re, in previous years? Cause there was, I think Bishop, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Yeah. The first ever was, um, Niall O'Brien. Now, I don't know if people will ever remember him. He, he was in prison in the Philippines. He was a, a Columbus missionary as well. And he was put in prison on trumped up charges. And he was in prison for a year. We did a big campaign. His mother was fantastic. She went into a, a mock prison cell outside the US Embassy. And it became an image that went around the world. In fact, when he was released, the judge held up the picture of his mother inside this cage and saying, your mother must be a very powerful woman. Wow. So, uh, yeah. So, um, yeah. So, and Katrina Ryan actually led the walk that year. That was the very first year ever. Donico Dooling. Um, but over the years, we've had, you know, as, as you mentioned, Desmond Tutu, uh, Tom Highland and the people, the students from East Timor, mm. you know, um, well, Christy Moore, Ronnie Drew, yeah, Dick Dempsey. The yeah. Catholic worker, um, the pit stop uh, plowshares, did they lead us one year? Um, Kathy Kelly did. Kathy did, was, yeah. Yeah, she, she's from that tradition as well. So, um yeah, uh, and um, got the, the name of that the woman who, um, you know, that famous iconic photograph from Vietnam. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. The I, name, her name doesn't come. Yeah, to I should, I should remember that now. But uh, it'll come back to me. But uh, yeah, so it, yeah, it's, it's. I think it's an amazing event as well. Obviously, I have a, a very strong emotional attachment to it. But it just brings so many elements together: history and Angorta Moor and that incredible location to do that rally. I don't know if there's a place like it anywhere. It's amazing. 
And then it's, it, it's the memory is very much alive there, isn't it? And to draw is, those yeah. parallels. Yeah, is exactly. It, is it Kim, Kim Pook? Kim Pook, exactly. Kim Pook, yeah. Yeah, and I remember we had people from the, the Maya and uh, like it was extraordinary. Uh, they spoke and their voices echoed back off the mountain. We used to have it on the side of the road. That was before we went to Delphi Lodge, which is a whole other dimension now. But their voices were echoing back. And when they got off the stage where they were speaking, they kissed the ground, you know, and they said, when we walk, we are walking with the spirit of your ancestors, you know. So it's just amazing, amazing, amazing moments. And... um, like, it's a very special place there, you know, and it's been amazing now to make the link with Delphi Lodge, you know, which is the place where the people were turned away from. But now Michael Wade is there, and and, and he is a fantastic example of how we can reinterpret history and how we can change things. And he has welcomed the walkers. He has created a memorial to the famine victim, the people who died on, the, on that walk, and to all victims of famine. And he is, he is creating a an oak grove there in in memory and you know so just really reinterpreting and changing what was a really dark uh, memory and experience in history yeah it's it certainly and i i think nothing can obviously we'll we'll have a great gathering online but i think nothing can take away from that experience of walking alongside hundreds of other people with the intention yeah. a, intentionality that comes with it there's, yeah, exactly. there's the conversations that take place really you know like you could be talking to somebody and then you step aside to let somebody pass and then you're talking to somebody else and yeah you know like i think it's a very it's a very powerful form of politics the politics of, of walking talking mm. <laughs> yeah absolutely and music of course so, Joe, um, one of the things that also comes to mind before we finish up is the fact that AFRI remains very, well, relatively small organization, very modest budgets, very nimble. Um, and, you know, Ireland has a massive charity sector, a massive NGO sector. And without getting too critical, uh, I feel that sometimes or rather too often the spirit of the original intention of the founders and of the work gets diluted. Perhaps it's just an inevitable part of what we might call success that the work gets mainstreamed and it it settles in and it does what it does and it does it well. But when it comes to challenging orthodoxy or what might be in injustice and systemic wrongs, we kind of need to uphold a fighting spirit. And when you get into nonprofit worlds and civil society and charity and fundraising, suddenly you find yourself silenced or silencing yourself. That's been a continual kind of current for AFRI, hasn't it? It has, surely, Rory, yeah. And I, I, I understand exactly what you're saying. And I remember, I don't know what year it was now, but it's a fairly long time ago. And Tom Kitt was the Minister for uh, Overseas Development. And he invited everybody from the sector into Ivy House. And there was a big meal and there was waiters with things on their arms and bottles of wine. And I remember thinking, this is this is a double-edged sword. And I think it really was a moment when the sector was fairly tamed, you know. We came, it was a moment when we, we moved from being outside the gates to being inside. And I think a lot of the age was lost, um, at that at that point, you know, or round about then, anyway. Um, yeah, it's 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 it, it, it's hard to keep the edge, and you you do get 
tired, uh, you know. Um, and, you know, I suppose we all, to some extent, compromise and um, become silent. But I think, you know, there are certain moments when you are reawakened. And, and like, for example, we were involved in the Rossport struggle, which is, for me, one of the greatest things, you know, that AFRI has been involved in. Um, you, you know, I talked about the non-story strikers and Tom Island. Well, the community in Rossport are on the same level. Can you, can you talk about why, Joe, just particularly for anyone that maybe isn't that familiar? Yeah, well, Rossport is a beautiful uh, seaside area in, in County Mayo, very remote as well. And Shell just came in and discovered gas and uh, said they were building a pipeline right through the heart of the community. And the community said no and um, resisted, uh, resisted unbelievably courageously and put their lives on the line and literally were beaten up and, um, you know, um, like the way the Irish state operated against the people of, of um, Rossport is a scandal and remains a scandal. I hope someday it'll be unveiled, you know, every agent of state was used against them. And like these are unbelievably good, solid people. Like I all, what I always thought is they were like, a rural area like where I came from and I used to see people like my dad or my uncle being beaten up uh, and it just shouldn't it shouldn't have happened it did happen um, people got away with it but again history has a way of, of unfolding and you never know yet what will hopefully the story the real story will come out but they resisted heroically for 12 years 14 years but eventually shall prevailed and they built the terminal and it's now operating. Um, and we got into a lot of trouble with our funding at that stage because we unapologetically took the side of the community. Uh, but it was a privilege as well, you know, like you just, you know, when you meet people like Willie Cardoff and Vincent McGrath and Mary Cardoff and the Shines, you know, you, you just know, you just know. Um, so, and it's important, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's in a way it's the test. And I'm not saying, I think we all fail it in ways, but how do we, how do we bring it all back home? You know, it's easy to talk about injustice in the, in the global south and it's important to talk about injustice. But how do we make that connection back home? You know, whether it's with travellers' rights or uh, people in direct provision, you know, that's, I think that's the, the test. And um, I think we have to have the courage of our convictions. And when you see an injustice like direct provision, regardless of the consequences for funding or whatever, you have to speak out, you know. Here, here. Long may it continue, Joe. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and I uh, appreciate you sharing some stories and insights from the road. Um, long may the road continue and um, we could we could do another many hours of from the archives here but uh we we both have to go and prepare for the famine walk this year and uh looking forward to that and on behalf of everybody that's uh i suppose watched on the work that you do and afri does and, and championed it and supported it um just want to say thank you joe for keeping the flame lit and the flag flying and uh onwards Thanks a million, Rory. And uh, yeah, like it's a real pleasure to talk to yourself. As I say, I said at the beginning, 
this is not something I do easily or lightly. And uh, but I just feel comfortable in chat to yourself, and it it, it really was a, a chat and a conversation. So thank you for that. Hello, Rory here again. We have a song coming up in just a moment, so please stay tuned just another while longer. Thanks again for tuning in to the Love and Courage podcast. Thanks to Joe for a great conversation. Can I ask that you might consider sharing this podcast with some friends who might enjoy it, perhaps through social media, WhatsApp, email, or whatever way you find might work. Also, all subscribe, shares, ratings, reviews, all of those things, all appreciated. The same with chipping in as a once-off or monthly patron and a huge thanks to all who already do. Just head over to loveandcourage.org and check out and support Afri's work at afri.ie, A-F-R-I.ie. You can find out more about my book, Hitching for Hope, at hitchingforhope.com and you can find out more about Susan Quirk's music and meditation at susanquirk.com, Q-U-I-R-K-E susanquirk.com we'll also be ending now with a song from Susan Quirk's album Into the Sea it's called Home and it was written about the global refugee crisis as a callback to our shared humanity there's also a powerful video to accompany this song I hope you enjoy it and thanks again for your support for the podcast and all my work until next time let's get started with this song from Susan Quirk it's called Home Home